Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of As We Like It, your favorite podcast where we watch movies that are interpretations of the works of Shakespeare and discuss their merits both as films and as interpretations. Today, we're revisiting a filmmaker we've done one episode on before, although that episode was actually our only non-film episode because we did watch a recording of the Met Opera production of the opera Falstaff that was directed by Franco Zeffirelli. Today, we're watching and discussing a film that he directed, the 1968 version of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, so this version stars Leonard Whiting as Romeo, Olivia, Olivia Hussey as Juliet. Curious casting choice to cast Juliet as a hussy, but... <laughs> Come back to that. That's neither here nor there. John McInerney is Mercutio, Milo O'Shea is Friar Lawrence, Michael York is Tybalt, and Lawrence Olivier plays an uncredited role as the narrator for the film. Uh, he also overdubs the role of Lord Cap... Uh, not Capulet. What's the other Montague. family? Montague. Thank you. You'd think Montague. I would be able to remember this. <laughs> Montague. Because uh, the actor they had playing Lord Montague only spoke Italian. So mm-hmm. so I'm John, or today I'm going to be Jonathan, since we're kind of have a rotating host of guests right now. So uh, refer to me as Jonathan today. And I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And I'm John, John with an H. And uh, we can also call this the, the Zeparelli <laughs> Zone or the John cast. Uh, if it's just down to... The two Johns at some point. Yes, we're very, we're feeling a, a surfeit of Johns. Does that, no, that would be wrong. That would imply there's too many. A waffle of Johns. That would be the collective noun. <laughs> I know, I keep finding every time I use the John in the plural that it, it does sound wrong. Yeah, we're glad to be joined by both of you today. We're excited we could actually find a time that transatlantic and international GMT. <laughs> one of us could actually meet up. Yes. So... While I picked the last Zeffirelli, I actually did not pick this one. Even was like, hey, we think we're going to watch this one. So if we can, all four of us find a time, you know, let's try to do it. And I say that I'm a big fan of Zeffirelli. This is actually the only movie of his I've seen. He's done others. He did um, a biography of St. Francis of Assisi called Brother, mm-hmm. Son, Sister, Moon. He did a mini series of The Passion of the Christ, but it's not the sadistic and horrible (laughs) that came out in 1977 uh he's done some other films but this one is i think by far his most famous film and actually i had not seen this movie since i was in ninth grade so (laughs) it was interesting revisiting this after becoming familiar with his his works in opera right right well, it was actually uh john with an h you were the one who chose it though i i kind of gave you some Mm -hmm. options why was it that you particularly wanted to do this one? It had been on my list for a long time. Actually, I remember it in my Netflix queue for ages and ages. And then I moved, <laughs> and then Irish Netflix was different, and then I didn't have it anymore. And I saw it on your you know, master, as we like it, uh, spreadsheet, and it jumped out. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm quite glad we uh, did watch it because... It's the Shakespeare that I think we kind of have in our collective imagination. This is how Shakespeare looks and and sounds and the costuming and the setting. At least in my my first blush, it, it definitely lived up to its uh, its reputation as one of the great Shakespeare adaptations for the screen. I have I have a lot of questions and issues with some of the adaptations and the cuts <laughs> that we'll get to, but all around, yeah. it drives home a gorgeous love story. It is very iconic. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I hadn't actually seen it before. No, no. I, I, I saw it in high school. You know, when we did right. uh, Romeo and Juliet as a high school. Okay, student. so Mark and I are in the same boat here, and John and Avon are in the same boat. <laughs> ah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We first to it. Or yeah, some, with so. with several Canadians, I guess it's a it's a boat. <laughs> boat. <laughs> Hey, <laughs> hey now. Speaking of Canadians, I, I was doing some research on Leonard and Olivia, and Olivia mm. went on to star in the 1974 Canadian slasher Black Christmas by Bob Clark, which is a Whoa. very fun movie, uh, but such an obscure uh, next or soon next role. I think she stopped acting for a bit after this this production, but uh, and then Le- Leonard Whiting kind of dropped off of acting altogether, I think. Yeah, as I was looking at the IMDb page for every actor involved in this, pretty much the only actor of note is Michael York. Michael York, yeah, he's a big, big name, mm-hmm. but... Uh... Mm-hmm. And he's not even really a big name in that he's just like a constant and steady Const- yeah. kind of... He's a working actor, He's yeah. a working actor, yeah, he's in exactly. a lot of things, yeah. Right. He's kind of like, um, oh, you know, Brian Blessed for... yeah. Mm-hmm. An example we've relied on in the past. Yes, or I was going to say James. Always Cr- kind of there. James Cromwell, one of those actors who mm-hmm. you seal in a lot of things, yeah. but he's usually not the main. Right. But returning to Brian, Brian Blessed and movies we've discussed before. As I was watching this movie, all of my callbacks to like other movies that we've watched and discussed, the, it felt most similar to Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's quite straight in terms of how it's done it sort of tries to be of its of the period that it seems to represent um it's very beautiful it's very sort of uh lushly shot yeah i would say that that's a good comparison i was also even thinking of the music oh yeah that's true which was a big hit at the time right it was it was i think it chopped the tarts uh Chopped the Tarts. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Topped the charts in 1969. It's a gorgeous score. Um, yeah. I don't well, like the disco remix as much, but... Uh, <laughs> my mom has always had this music box that when you open it, it's... Da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da. And I always thought that was just like some classic, you know, hmm. random, unidentified, like, song from the Western European classical music canon, and... Then I watch this movie when I'm in ninth grade. I'm like, wait, <laughs> wait a is that the song from my mom's music box? Cut to a shot of the, the music box falling off the mantle and shattering to a million pieces. <laughs> Thankfully, by that point, I was beyond the, uh, um, the Piaget development stage where my emotional outbursts were tied to my ability to control the environment. <laughs> I wish I had reached that at age five before I destroyed a very nice train set, though. No. <laughs> I'm quite delighted that we're seven, not even 17 minutes in here and we've got a Piaget reference. This is good. <laughs> I am a man of many hats. <laughs> I, 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 I will say, as a scholar of 14th century Italian architecture and how Mm. that is represented in the social sphere, which Mm. is something I rarely get to say. (laughs) This movie does a really, really, really fantastic job of using the architecture and like presenting a city in a realistic way for the setting, you know, Mm. the kind of interaction that these families would have. I thought that was the best part of watching this movie again personally for me was like seeing that and being like oh my yes that's so right you know they're doing this so well the fight scene between Romeo and Tybalt made Mm, really great use of this you know kind of jumping off of the staircases and stuff not in a way that's 
Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, like jumping off of staircases, but like very realistic using the terrain and the environment for your. Mm -hmm. I think you're spot on. I felt the setting was a character Mm -hmm. uh, in the film. And for the first time, I felt the conflict between the two families. When you read Romeo and Juliet on the page, I suppose you always wonder, well, why can't these two families just get along? And Mm. why is it? so dangerous and why does the the prince have to make these these announcements uh, threatening death and banishment and when they come together in the public space and the the conflicts erupt like you were saying jonathan um it it really brought home how deep those sort of familial conflicts are and and how real they could have been based on how the setting forces them together well plus how ridiculously violent was like the first scene oh i know i at the end of that i actually turned to mark and said well that really explains to you why the story has the weight of it's not just about two families it's about putting society back together you know Mm. as as why the prologue makes the story not so much about love but about how it healed the 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 two houses because it's a clear that first scene makes it clear how much of a public nuisance at the very least and public danger their uh conflict is the complete disruption john while you were saying like this is the best example you've seen of romeo and juliet like just as a romance i thought it was the best example i've seen of romeo and juliet as more than a romance because it really i thought it underscored all of these tiny little instances very very well of how the families are feuding with each other and then how they're kind of required to keep feuding with each other specifically the um the fight with Tybalt and Mercutio and Mercutio's Mm -hmm. death scene Mm -hmm. the way that all of that was played out where the fight started as it was honor and then it was fun and you could tell Mm -hmm. that they were both having fun and then at a certain point it escalated from being like a fun dueling match to actually being lethal yeah, and how that was actually accidental. Yeah, in in a way, anyway. At the end, when he kills him, he he didn't mean to. Yeah, and they play that ex- uh, escalation so well. Yeah, because everyone thinks that. I mean, it is you know they're dueling, but they're dueling kind of like you would fence. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, I I tapped you, and so I won. Mm-hmm. But then that situation, which arose out of this honor dynamic, then turned into real fury and real passion and real anger and then real death and i also thought that because the actors are fairly young Mm. and they played young i mean romeo played like a boy and so their inability to control themselves the the movement from it's fun to anger to passion seems really realistic it doesn't feel like the hastiness yeah yeah, like you know romeo is trying really hard not to be drawn in and he's trying to be good and 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 in other places where they're trying to hold you know tybalt back or whatever because again when you're reading it like you were saying john you sort of think well just don't fight like what is your problem people but it's that that immaturity emotional immaturity that is Mm -hmm. so characteristic of that age of those people of those people people at that age that is so true to life mm-hmm. um, that I think it really rings true. And then becomes this really good parallel to the imp- lack of impulse control of Romeo and, and Juliet. Yes. I mean, the just like the men folk can't, or the boys can't stop fighting and egging each other on and all the rest of it, Romeo and Juliet, you know, have this ridiculously impulsive love affair, can, can't control their emotions, can't, and are, are totally swept up by their emotions because they're children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I will say, like, 
this is the first Tybalt I've seen where I was like, yeah, that dude deserved to die. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> he really did like, push it. It was in his face. <laughs> Michael York portrays Tybalt as such like a sneering, pompous ass mm-hmm. that you're like actively rooting for his downfall. <laughs> uh, that said, I also thought that in watching this, Tybalt should have killed Romeo and then everything would just be happy again. <laughs> <laughs> the Capulets would have one up on the Montagues, but nothing else would go down. In which Jonathan changes the Western Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, onto your Mercutio note. Normally, I find uh, Mercutio very annoying and insufferable, and uh, the performance by what is it, uh, John uh, McEnery? McEnery? Mm-hmm. Um, John McEnroe. He, John McEnroe. <laughs> um, another John. Some John. He he was still he was still full of buffoonery and levity, but he had a, a sadness and a seriousness underneath it that I think came across in a very in a very touching way especially after his his queen uh queen mob speech mm-hmm. uh when he sort of works himself into kind of a wistfulness about the eventual decay of love that was at interesting odds with you know Romeo's impetuous impetuousness about it all um so i, I find myself i found myself attracted to mercutio in the first time uh and you're right tybalt on the on the page is normally someone I, I can kind of understand, uh, but this one I, I would have grabbed a sword as well and just <laughs> gotten owned by him. But <laughs> that was really good swordplay. It was funny at the end his um, his epox on both your houses yeah. was very I, it was very emotional and it was you know quite telling. On the other hand, earlier when they made him push it and push it and push it and cause the fight when everybody else was willing to walk away and Romeo was willing to walk away. I was sort of like, wait a minute, you're the one who totally picked that fight. Yeah. Why are you blaming all of them now? But on the other hand, it was very moving, the, mm-hmm. the way he it was performed, <laughs> his, his long extended de- death scene and his pretending he wasn't dying. And again, the childrenness of it all, like all the yeah. people standing around who were too much children to recognize that he'd really been wounded and to not even go off and get a doctor because he must be play acting because he's always playing the fool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On that, on the note of children, not yes. that this is super relevant to this film itself, but as I was watching this at multiple times through the night, my roommate would just start quoting them like along with them as they were saying, you know, <laughs> turns out she has almost all of Romeo and Juliet memorized. Wow. <laughs> and, it's, and it was because of her obsession with the Claire Danes version oh. <laughs> as a child. Right. And she kept saying That's multiple a thing. things the night like now she wants to watch romeo plus juliet right <laughs> well we'll keep it on our cue <laughs> it's it's just it's funny because rachel's not really a shakespeare person so for her to be quoting it out of the blue like line for line <laughs> it's really really amusing this this is the one this is the play that non-shakespeareans love if you've read a play if you've read shakespeare in high school or or, or in university you've probably read romeo and juliet and it's probably the one that you didn't hate reading yeah. if you're not, as you say, if you're not a Shakespeare person. Uh, yeah, probably so. Yeah, for me, the only Shakespeare that I like that was compulsory reading in my upbringing was Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, uh, Midsummer, and Tempest. Hmm. Oh. Oh, I was just going to say, we did one a year in, yeah. in our English classes. Including I think Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was grade nine. We did Romeo and Juliet. We did The Tempest. We did Macbeth. Macbeth. Yeah. And we did Hamlet. Hamlet yeah. Hamlet, yeah. I think those were the five, because we had five years of high school because gotcha. we were special. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Ontario before the 2000s. Three. I think I, 
think my freshman year we did Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, and A Merchant of Venice. Wow. Uh-huh. Then sophomore year, I can't recall for the life of me, but then junior, senior year, um, it was Othello, Macbeth, Hamlet, um, King Lear, uh, oh. and some other plays. Pretty tragedy centered. We did King Lear. In, yes, I did, that's true. We did Lear, King Lear yeah. too. I did a lot of English classes though, so possibly yeah. I did more than some people. I mm. do remember doing King Lear though. Yeah. King Lear is just my favorite. <laughs> it it's is so happy and yeah <laughs> it's it's just uplifting isn't it <laughs> especially that edited 18th century version you know so the alternate <laughs> ending where everyone lives happily ever after together yeah uh, but speaking okay, of yeah. children i mean i think the obvious thing to say about this movie is it's notable for having so many young actors as opposed to other film adaptations where you have people who frankly can't be taken as anything other than adult playing these roles and it just isn't believable Mm -hmm. and it i think it's structurally a problem for the story it really has to have i mean it's a story about young people and about how you know the experience of being of not having control over your life Mm -hmm. at that age to that end i read a note that, that said that zeffirelli kind of adapted his film to the skills and inabilities of young actors Mm -hmm. saying Mm -hmm. that he focused a lot on reaction shots because Mm -hmm. i i guess that i mean that is something easy to do when you're young Mm -hmm. you can laugh you can smile you can whatever but that also allows you to splice together multiple versions of dialogue if you're not like watching the person deliver it yeah so you can put Um, in we do a lot of takes and things yeah Exactly. Uh, I like to that end when Juliet kills herself. It's not very it's in a single shot and her death face is not very good. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's that's I noticed that as well in her in her sobbing. I found unbelievable. But when she was delivering her final lines, I actually felt something there, which I was surprised about because Mm -hmm. this is not a line heavy movie at all. Uh, There's massive amounts of text cut out of it. And I think uh, for for a reason and I would probably say ultimately a successful one um, I think Whiting is 17 during shooting and Olivia was uh, Olivia Hussey was 15 I had to say that during the sex scene or the scene where we see them mostly naked and sort of not actually having sex but rolling around on the bed I found I, I was distinctly uncomfortable with that. With, I, I believe that actually caused a minor there was a lot controversy. of buttock. I, the, the buttock on him I mean, if he's 17, that's still young, and I obviously should not be looking at 17-year-old naked boys. But um, I, I found even more so the fact, well, that we see a little bit of her, but also the fact that they were together. Right. Like, yeah, there's the, a certain the, voice. The actors, the actual actors yeah. were, you know, naked in bed together and rolling around. Mm-hmm. And there was no trickery being mm-hmm. used to do that. Clearly, they were. And knowing that she had to be, you know, very young, I, I found it uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> It reminded me of another Canadian film with uh, Jodie Foster, mm-hmm. the little girl who lived in the lane. I think the title goes. And there's a. It's interesting that you go to that because I was going to go to a different Jodie Foster movie, <laughs> <laughs> which is her role as the child prostitute in Taxi Driver. Right. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, of course, it's a larger ethical issue of how do we, what do you do about yeah. child actors or roles where you mm-hmm. want children to do something that's. 
taboo or, mm-hmm. or problematic, but you want an actor to do, you know, I, I get that it's difficult. How do you possibly do? But I don't, they didn't actually have to have that shot. They didn't have to. They have could have had them in either. bed, but in a way that we didn't see as much nudity. Mm-hmm. And for our next episode by Avon's request, we're doing our first non-Shakespeare <laughs> film and we're going to watch The Graduate. <laughs> <laughs> but to the point of that shot and why it was required Mm -hmm. have any of you seen pier paolo pasolini's version of the decameron no i haven't but i want to not that is the movie that i was most specifically reminded of when watching this movie okay i think it came out in 1973 i'm ish and it's it's a version of the decameron that only shows about eight or nine tales but it chooses one of the tales from the decameron that is about like youthful love and i remember one of the shots in that movie is you know this couple just wakes up naked on a like on a balcony or something well this is italy so it would be (laughs) like a belvedere and in this case it's the girl that wakes up first and there's a shot where she just like looks at the boy's body and then you see her like grab his penis and she just gives a little squeeze and then she smiles and that's it Mm. And that's like a really weird thing to see on screen, like with no introduction, like that's just like an interlude bit. But at the same time, like it's a representation of this. It's they're they're exploring each other's bodies. They're you know, you're mm-hmm. young and you're curious and mm-hmm. you're it's something that you are happy about. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I think, part of the, you know, maybe the Italian consciousness in a way that it's not mm-hmm. part of ours. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I don't think 15 year old girls should be having sex and I'm horrified to see it or something like that. It's, it's about me as a viewer being privy to it as a, you know, very much not a teenager myself. Mm. And now, and I don't know, it, I, it didn't ruin the movie or anything for me. It just, it, it I was very aware of it. It was jarring. Yeah. I felt jarred too. I noticed it. Mm-hmm. And that's when we get into the kind of ethical issues, like an actor the job of an actor is to use their body and their emotional abilities, you know, mm-hmm. to present the story. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at what point does it become unethical to ask an actor to do something? Mm-hmm. Like, in this case, is it because they're underage? Mm-hmm. Well, the issue is a very Shakespearean one. To what extent does performance become reality? Yeah. Mm. Ooh, this just got meta. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Anyway, meta. I mean, at least... At least my discomfort was slightly mollified by the fact she wasn't actually 13. I know it's only a year, two years difference from what she said to be. She said to be a few, what, a few weeks short well, of her 14th not birthday. Yet. Not yeah. yet 14. Right. So. Not yeah. yet 14, yeah. And I know that's not a big difference, but at that age, obviously, in a year or two makes a big difference. But still. Anyway, mm-hmm. I just uh, wanted to flag that because mm-hmm. it was something I certainly felt. I agree, Mark, that it, I... Mm-hmm. was very happy that they were all so young and that yeah. they were close to the ages yeah. they're supposed to be because I think it really, really added to the movie. You know, I, I was looking at some stats on the... We, we often think about uh, Elizabethans marrying very young mm. and I came across a site that said, in fact, most people actually got married in their late 20s yeah. uh, in Elizabethan England. Um, and you can see in the text, too, that not everybody is readily marrying at at 13, 14, 15. Yeah. There's some conversations that don't really get played up in the, in the film, but in the text you see some concerns about, you know, when um, Lady Capulet's talking to Juliet about are you ready to marry, um, and Paris talking about the age as well. So there were some complexities there in the text that I think maybe might have been minimized in the film for the sake of for the sake of the love story. But their innocence, their youthfulness, their nobility, their their wide eyedness, their unwrinkled skin for the love, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, definitely added 
added to the passion and the innocence and it made me less normally i'm really critical of romeo and juliet i think they're idiots uh there's a lot of lines <laughs> saying that they're idiots friar lawrence voice of reason thank you very much friar but I didn't feel that tension as much in this film. I was mm-hmm. wasn't exactly rooting for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what's going to happen. I was sort of swept away by their love story more than I expected to be. And I think that's due to Zeffirelli's pacing, perhaps. The, the performances are brilliant, too. So Successful, if jarring, when you see buttocks and partial breast in the, the bedroom scene. One last note about the youthfulness of the characters and this actually, or the actors, and this is a great way to segue into our next talking point is the other thing Zeffirelli really like consciously did with using such young actors is he trimmed a lot of the Mm. longer monologues to make it more natural for them to be speaking. Right. And probably easier for them to learn their lines and do their performances too, because they are uh, those big monologues and speeches can be quite the endurance test, I think, for actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Zeffirelli uh, lopped off quite a few monologues, including some interesting ones from Juliet, I thought, about some intimations of doubt she's having about the the speed of their marriage, mm-hmm. um, the wonderful monologue she has about uh, her macabre visions of waking up in the, the yeah. mausoleum after the potion comes up. Um, but those monologues are unnatural to begin with. Well, yes. I mean, that's part of the job and and one we've talked about before in terms of when you adapt to the screen. If you're going to adapt into a proper movie rather than a filmed play... It has to feel more realistic. You have to grapple with the fact that Shakespeare is not naturalistic. And you have to figure out how you're going to deal with that. How natural can you make it? And one of the ways often, I mean, going back to Much Ado, Jonathan, the thing in Much Ado is he cuts stuff. But also he, as I talked about then, he cuts a lot of like half lines, partial lines, a line or two out Mm -hmm. of a dialogue in order to make it more natural Mm -hmm. sounding. He cuts not chunks, though he does that too, but he does a lot of micro cutting to try to make it sound more natural so that it sounds because it's such a naturalistic film he's trying to reach that so mm-hmm. yeah i think that's part of what what you do end up having to do as a director one of the problems that i had with some of the cuts that they made was that it for me it reduced the difference between the characters of Romeo and Juliet it made them seem like both the same the same character and one of the ways that i kind of read the play is that they are actually quite different and Juliet is very much mature beyond her years which is why he has to go out of his way to really specify her age because you wouldn't believe that she was 13 that she or was 14 13. yeah and it comes down to the idea of you know culpability at what age are you responsible responsible mm-hmm. yeah so that the fact that she has those speeches where she mulls over because really romeo never does no he's romeo just you know, never has a moment of saying i wonder if this is what i should do or all he can cons- his speeches are just about how am i going to manage to do yeah. what i want to do or just sort of flowery poet poetizing yeah he is he is much more poetizing at the end of the balcony scene he brings up the idea of marriage and he goes into language about swearing and juliet stops him and says no don't swear in something like the moon the moon is inconstant and she begins saying uh, it is too rash too unadvised too sudden and we begin seeing her yeah mm-hmm. already drawing back yeah yeah And then she goes away, at least in the film, she goes away, she parts from Romeo, and then she comes back and she decides, yes, let's do do this. I mean, there's still impetuousness, but you see her, you see her grappling with it in a way that, you're right, Mark, I don't think you see Romeo grapple with it all. He goes from Rosaline to Juliet. That's what everyone forgets about Romeo and Juliet. He was in love with Rosaline first. You know, we always Mm -hmm. gloss over that. 
Well, this movie glosses over it too. Yeah, they cut out a lot of the Rosalind. By uh, they do stuff. mention it, and in the Friar Lawrence yeah, scene, yeah, I think that's the first scene that yeah. she's mentioned. Yeah, and the only other thing is right at the beginning where he's mooning about when we were first introduced to him, when he's coming in yeah. with his flower. You get the sense that he's, you know, we're being told he's in love and he's yeah. mooning about it, but we're not told we're with not whom, who, and yeah. it just sort of is made into almost like a character piece of him that he's just he's, he's just a person a who's character. in love. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> just like that's what. The part of his character and yeah they cut out the fact that he's desperately attached to somebody else until five seconds after he sees Juliet when he's desperately attached Mm -hmm. to her the other thing that I missed was in I I think my favorite part about Shakespeare which will come to no one's surprise is the the depth and the complexity of the language Mm -hmm. and in Romeo and Juliet you'll see Shakespeare creating all sorts of confusions and ambiguities and conflicts in the language itself. Romeo has that passage about, oh, brawling love, oh, loving hate, Mm -hmm. oh, heavy lightness, serious vanity. And you have these oxymorons that recur throughout the play. I just think it develops an interesting idea about how committing to someone by, you know, the speech act of marriage or by, by swearing to be faithful or the idea of banishment. You know, Juliet says, Romeo is banished. To speak that word is father, mother, Tybalt, Romeo, Juliet, all slain, all dead. There's, mm-hmm. uh, you feel like Shakespeare's developing something on the level of the language. You know, I think for Zeffirelli's purposes, obviously that's tangential, but the complexities of the relationship, you know, I think are rewarding. Um, and, and that was that was missing in the play. In the movie, yeah. For me, I don't, I don't, in, the, in the movie, yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know the play as well, certainly, as, as you do, Mark, so I didn't catch all of the, and I hadn't sat down and looked through it, so I didn't mm. catch all of the dropped lines. But I will say that one stood out for me is in the balcony scene, because it feels like it's like the most maybe the second most famous line from the movie, from the play, where he says, uh, what light from yonder window break? Yeah. And he, he they had the, that the line. First, the first it line the of East it. And Juliet is the sun. Yeah, he left that out. He left that he out. He doesn't and say it is the East lady. and Juliet is the sun. Yeah. He just goes straight from what light? It is my lady. And I just thought, wait, that's like... It's soft, what light through yonder window breaks, yeah. I just thought, like, that's that's what Romeo... That one and wherefore art thou Romeo? Those are like... The key lines. The yeah. only lines <laughs> most people know from this play and it seemed so perverse to leave that out that which we call a rose by any of the word would smell as sweet uh parting such sweet sorrow there's lots of other yeah. quotes but a lot of people wouldn't know they're from romeo and juliet but at the same time like if you want people to buy into your movie it's mm-hmm. almost necessary to not have those because they take you out too much exactly because mm-hmm. everyone knows you know it is the east and juliet is the sun so when you hear that you're like oh yeah it's that thing i'm watching mm-hmm. this you know yeah, there's that. Though they left in the wherefore art thou Romeo, but of course you can't. Like you can't that, it's that integral yeah. to the plot, I think. Yeah, that is. The, the stuff and about all, the but, but the way That goes back to the language idea. Mm-hmm. And the way that she said wherefore art thou Romeo was not, you know, she didn't say, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Oh, yeah, was, no, she it was she more put nuanced. It, yeah. to wherefore art thou Romeo? Wherefore art thou Romeo, yeah. Yeah, no, she did a good job of, of reading it, of, of speaking it Actually, meaningfully. Shakespeare's most misinterpreted line. It, it is an important change, even if, speakers of modern English aren't going to acknowledge it is mm. you know it's like why are you Romeo yeah. versus why are you Romeo it is why is it Romeo that I'm in love with versus why is the person that I'm in love with Romeo Romeo why do you have to be called Romeo if you were called another name we wouldn't have this conflict because Romeo is a Montague name and that that's how that's how arbitrary the conflict is too yeah right? yeah it's a name and it's I mean the the whole feud is an airy word right so it's all about the yes. meaningless of words and, and labels for things mm-hmm. rather than any true meaning. Yeah. And I think it is key to the play that we're never told why they feud. No. 
you know, the, we're not given the inciting act or oh, any we're told is it, it was an airy word. Yeah. Yeah. I never thought about that before. That's a good point. We don't really know what causes their conflict. And it was clearly unimportant because what's important is only that they're feuding. Yeah. I, I did get a strong read from this film that the Capulets have the higher hand. Yeah. Lady Capulet was particularly fierce. She yes. was savage. Actually, she got a lot. A lot of her lines are actually... I had recently read this play for Shakespeare Confidential and I was following along with my text during the film mm-hmm. and a lot of Capulets, you know, mm-hmm. the Mr. Capulet, uh, a lot of her li- his lines actually go to Lady Capulet, and it Ooh. plays up her her coldness and her savageness, yeah. um, which goes into the whole, you know, mother daughter thing. Well, I thought that played nicely. I mean, you said that they didn't really necessarily stress the fact that there is question about whether Juliet's ready to marry or not. Mm-hmm. But I did think that they hit fairly nicely on the some are marred who marry too young. Yeah. Yes, that's not the right quote, but where uh, Capulet says, "Yes, I know that." women that girls that young can get married but sometimes it ruins them and they kind of played that up mm-hmm. a bit so that it was like like i married and then we later hear that indeed juliet's mother was married at her age mm-hmm. and it seems to have marred yeah. her she was satisfyingly unlikable yeah and, so, and, and but it actually kind of there's an undercurrent there of saying well maybe the reason she's not a great mother is because she was married and bore her child so young. Yeah. You know, she was a mother at 14 mm-hmm. and she's not particularly fond of her child. You mm-hmm. know, I might be reading too much into it, but I thought there was a little bit of the, just the way it was played that, that kind of stressed that. Well, in that scene, uh, Capulet doesn't even look at Lady Capulet when he first addresses her. Oh yeah. He looks off in the distance. I noticed that and I think it was, I think it was important. Yeah. They were clearly, not only is she not a very loving mother, but it was clearly not a happy relationship. Yeah. between the two of them either. Which is why they don't see the point of marriage as having anything to do with love. Right, because... They see so... it as purely a political arrangement. Well, so now I'm going way too deep into my own head because when I said that the interpretation I got from this movie is that the Capulets had the other hand, internally I was thinking the Medici versus the Sforza in Florence. <laughs> and now with all of this you're talking about, like, you know, Lady Capulet and the politicization of marriage, all I can think about is Catherine de' Medici. Mm. Mm. And, mm-hmm. and what happened in France, but yeah. that's totally, totally unrelevant. <laughs> well, I, I, think I the, just needed to get well, that out there. It's what you bring to the text. Yeah. And also it is, you know, the question of what marriage is for, for yeah. is also, it, it really is central to. It is very central. Yeah. And who gets to, who gets to marry for what reason? Juliet's, it's because of their noble family that mm-hmm. Juliet's not going to be allowed to marry for love. And I thought to that, the nurse, whom I want to mention, yes, uh, because nurses are always important in Shakespeare, but I mm-hmm. thought it was really interesting how fully gleeful she was and for, like how enthusiastically she was ready to help Juliet, mm-hmm. at least on, until she sort of turned on her. Mm-hmm. But un, until that point, you know, she was all for it. She was thought the the any way she could help Juliet have her illicit love affair with mm-hmm. Romeo was great. She because was, for her you know relationships is for sex well that's what yeah that so that's what i was going to say because of her class mm-hmm. relationships or marriage or marriage or whatever. for love for sex that's you know whatever the mm-hmm. confluence between love and sex is <laughs> so that's that's her perspective on it and while at the higher level the perspective is it's all about social class and politics and so the the romeo and juliet are trapped between those two conceptions mm-hmm. and then there's friar lawrence and his sort of more He's got a political view to marriage, but he's also got a sort of spiritual view to it and all of this. So they're... They're pawns in everyone's game. Yeah, they, and they're, they're trying to figure out what marriage means to them. 
or at least they ought to be trying to figure it out. Not that Romeo's spending any time trying to, but <laughs> but Juliet is. But you're right. The, the nurse, the nurse seems, the nurse seems genuinely happy that Juliet is happy. Yeah, which she, is the sense I got. Yeah, and and she's like, oh yeah. yeah, Romeo's really like, oh yeah, he's a pretty good looking guy, and he clearly, you know, he's ready to get it on with you. That's great. I will do my best to facilitate that. <laughs> but of course, she's well, also willing but, to change so quickly. But then, because it's just about sex for her, because rather it's just about than, sex love, than love. Once it's happened, they've had their sex. They've had their sex, then yeah, And on. now it's become dangerous, and why yeah. would you want to continue with something dangerous? Well, yeah. all right, move on to the next guy. Paris but is pretty good also, looking. <laughs> this also shows how like horribly irresponsible as like caretakers both the nurse and the friar are. Yes. 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 Especially the friar. Quite enabling. Quite enabling. Yeah. The friar is always that good question of like he's the voice of reason you said, but on the other hand, his plot is lunatic. <laughs> like what he suggests to to Juliet. I mean, why not just run away instead of pretend to die? Or why not tell your parents you're not you're already married and not a virgin? <laughs> I bet you Paris won't try to marry you then. <laughs> like, like no, let's pretend you're dead. And then I mean, it's just. And and in fact, in being willing to facilitate the marriage, I mean, he's he thinks he's following a higher purpose, but he's using them. Mm-hmm. He looks he looks very uh, very conspicuously at the crucifix and, and mm-hmm. sees their marriage as a way to solve the feud between the families. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it unfolds that way in the text. Um, it's interesting that they get to consummate their marriage. Normally, if you think about this plot. Maybe if you were writing the story today, Romeo and Juliet would never get to consummate their marriage, um, never get to have sex. Um, so it's interesting. I wonder what it means that they do get to have sex and then they die afterwards. <laughs> well, if it were a horror movie, it would be because they, they had, had sex, sex that they died. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's certainly the, the way that it's handled in Shakespeare's source, the narrative poem Romeo and Juliet. He makes mm. clear in the preface that it's because of their lust that they're punished. Right. Ah. But they're also significantly older. Like she's 16 in mm. the in, in the, the source, source text. text. Right. And I was going to say that I think one of the things is that it isn't a marriage if they don't have sex. Yes. Um, right. That's true. You know, so yeah. like just in terms of the uh, contemporary conception of the marriage, been the wedding is only half of it. Mm-hmm. And it would also be easily annulled. Yeah. It is only because they've slept together that, that no she that back. it's irrevocable yeah. mm-hmm. that they can that she can't marry Paris. I mean, had they not slept together, her parents would have just said, "Well, we just that wedding never happened. We'll annul it. We'll move on." The, she wouldn't right. have been trapped right. in that same way. They have to have consummated it. She has to not be a virgin anymore because once it's consummated, there's no going back. Mm-hmm. The only way they can yeah. be free is to die. And yeah. we, we must, of course. Remember the great Shakespearean pun that to die means to have orgasm, yes. which is why I always thought I always thought this play was kind of comedic. <laughs> and there's an argument that many make that it's comedic because you got this double suicide at the end, and with this kiss I die, and you have to imagine, <laughs> you know, people in the pit at the Globe chuckling at the uh, the, the bodiness of it all. Uh, but not here. This Zeffirelli is straight on love right here, in my opinion. Yeah. It's interesting, though, that, you know, Romeo gets once again, sort of flowery, poetic death speech. Juliet gets, yeah, these kind of earthy, humorous, mm-hmm. grim jokes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's very, hmm. she's more pragmatic, it's not quite the right word for her, but more down to earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And again, I think that establishes the difference between them. It's perhaps not surprising that she has as her role model, uh, the nurse, Mm -hmm. and he has as his role model, Fire Lawrence. Right. Right. So he's got the spiritual Mm -hmm. flower, you know, that side of it as his sort of his adult influence. And she's got the nurse who is obviously body and and sexual and and Mm -hmm. down to earth in every way and comic. That's a great observation. Yeah. I've got one more point about culpability, I guess. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I talked about the culpability associated with their age, but there's also the culpability associated with what kind of tragedy we take it to be. Right. You know, if we look at it in the Aristotelian form, you know, we'd be looking for hamartia. Is there some mistake that they make? Mm -hmm. And it's probably easy enough to identify that as, you know, rashness or something like that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, the other possible model for tragedy in Shakespeare's time was the sort of medieval form of tragedy that grows out of um, Boethian philosophy, in which case it's fate. And that word fate gets used so many times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And indeed, you know, it's easy to say, well, because Romeo missed getting the the message from Friar Lawrence, then it, you Mm -hmm. know, it all ended up doomed or you know so many accidents happen right Mm -hmm. mercutio gets killed by accident Mm -hmm. but then romeo does make a choice he does make a foolish choice in Mm -hmm. getting seeking revenge but then what does he blame it on i am fortune's fool Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so which is it (laughs) can we have it both ways but the very prologue which calls them star-crossed lovers that's that suggests that they are doomed that they they are uh, they're controlled by an external force yeah and and I think Shakespeare's another one of Shakespeare's us. most misinterpreted lines. Starcrossed is not a good thing, people. It's not good. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. yeah. They're doomed. Disastrous. Paris has cut out the entire mausoleum scene. He's yes. got a pretty big role at the end. He and I, Romeo kills Paris, if I'm not mistaken. He does. Right? Yeah. 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 And that's that, that's that's another that's another act of rashness yep. when he when he kills himself and mm-hmm. he assumes. Mm-hmm. So we don't we don't get as rash of a Romeo. No, in we don't. Really, I guess. The- uh, yeah, I was going to say actually. I think that that is a really telling cut actually because mm-hmm. what it does is it removes one of the ways in which you can feel that Romeo is culpable yeah. and one of the things you can blame him for, and it keeps your Romeo mm. more sympathetic and more sort of innocent because he's played very innocent. Very innocent. I mean, he's yeah. such a fresh-faced boy, and he's played as sort of the one, and, and the way he's not in the the fight at the beginning. He's set aside from it. He sort of seems not as much as fa- at fault and not as implicated in mm-hmm. all of the, of what's going on. And if he came back and killed Paris, after the way the movie plays him the whole way, I think if he came back, found Paris and killed him, it would turn your sympathy quite a lot yeah. against him. Because, mm-hmm. because Paris doesn't appear very much, we don't actually see him. Uh, in the play, he spends more time persuading them to marry Juliet to him, I think. A little bit more time anyway, and I think most of that's cut out. Nothing that Paris does in the movie would suggest he would deserve being killed. No. If he came back and killed him at that point with the little that we'd seen Paris, it would seem pretty unforgivable, I think. So I think that that had to be cut out to keep Romeo the way that Zeffirelli was playing him. Right. Yeah. Keep it consistent. Mm -hmm. Which is a pretty major, I wouldn't even call it an interpretation because he's cutting out he's cutting out so much evidence as it were about Romeo's character in the text mm-hmm. he is he's remaking Romeo he's mm-hmm. retelling he's giving us a different Romeo i think it's the Romeo in our imaginations as i was saying before yeah. Yeah. that balcony scene is iconic the feel the look the music and the way Romeo is is the lover that you know every ninth grader who's ever watched Romeo plus Juliet has ever wanted mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. 
you know, I, I think it I think it makes for a successful film, obviously. I think it makes for a less interesting film, perhaps. But I wonder I wonder if there if you guys see any deeper reasons for Zeffirelli's purpose. What why would he want to drive a harder a straighter romance, if you will? Why do you, why do you think Zeffirelli was interested in this major adaptation of Romeo and Juliet? Well, I mean, like I said at the beginning, I think this is the first example of this play that I've seen that really successfully demonstrated everything behind the romance, you know, the family feud, this Italian nature to it, the way the city was used. So I think, you know, in order to be able to present all of that in a movie, you're going to have to simplify some of the more complex elements. At the same time, in using younger actors who only have specific acting abilities, you know, you are required to make some compromises. And in making a movie, you have a company who is controlling the purse and the company Mm -hmm. wants specific things because they are expecting, you know, the audience to be X, Y, and Z. And in fact, this movie was incredibly popular with teenagers at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a little bit of all of the above, you know, some, some of it is the nature of interpretation and you're making creative decisions because you're interpreting it versus you know, reading the text aloud. Others is, you know, the reality of making a movie with someone else's money. And be- mm. making it, um, you know, one of the things about Romeo and Juliet that confuses people when they read it is we all think it's a romance, but it's really a tragedy. Yeah. We, you know, we right. all know that, but yeah. it is in so many people's imagination, it's a the romance. Great, great romance. And so right. when you're yeah. marketing this film, when you're deciding yeah. you're going to make the movie and then going to market it, I mean, yes, they die, but romances can have people die at the end mm. in our modern conception that's not a problem but i can see wanting to be able to say clearly what this film is and if it's also a political drama or if it also has you know the question of is he really a good person or not and do we approve of them or not it becomes harder to sell it as a straight romance Mm -hmm. i think so i i agree jonathan that it's probably pragmatic compromise as much as anything else and desire to tell a certain story yeah. Yeah. Here, the here, the tragedy is the ultimate romance. It's the mm-hmm. he loves me so much he was willing to die for me sort of trope. Yeah. Yeah. It unfortunately therefore furthers illusion that Romeo and Juliet is the ultimate love story. Yes. You know, I think this movie is to a large extent. It's certainly not the only thing responsible for that, but it's a big part of why so many people unthinkingly think that Romeo and Juliet are the lovers to emulate, and that everybody yeah. should hope that they're. You know, every teenage girl wants a Romeo, <laughs> and every teenage boy wants a Juliet. I don't think they necessarily do, but I mean, there's an there's enough people out there, and mm-hmm. particularly from the girls' side. You know, that sort of is held up as that Romeo, everybody wants their Romeo. The fact that it's become... He's a Romeo. Yeah, yeah. become yeah. emblematic yeah. of a certain kind of lover. It's an awful love story to... To, <laughs> to emulate. To That's emulate. That's true. <laughs> it's a really it's a bad shit, idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The shit show, pardon my French, yeah. but, you know. Yeah, not only for the fact <laughs> that it obviously ends in death, but also for the fact that they are so impulsive, that they... Yeah three days after they've met they're married and then dead and which is another difference from the source by the way i should point out in oh, yeah. the in the source it's months right the, the love affair occurs over the course of months right so shakespeare hmm. you know shortens this into three days yeah now that's probably partly for sort of aristotelian ideas about unity yes. of, of yeah. action mm-hmm. but still not everybody who reads the play knows that that's why he did it yeah it's one of those things that you see is people idealizing love and romance with this as their model and it just 
you know, that's not what Shakespeare was trying to say, I don't think. I don't think Shakespeare was trying to say, everybody, this is how perfect love works. No, it's a cautionary tale. Yeah. Really. Although it has it has a good political outcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Families do come together. Well, yeah. they are the sacrifices then. This romance is idealized to the extent that Romeo becomes metonymous with the idea of an ideal lover. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 1992, Dolly Parton came out with a single, no, sorry, 93, called Romeo, fe- featuring what was like the cream of the cream of country music talent at the time. <laughs> Mary Chapin Carpenter, Pam Tillis, Billy Ray Cyrus, Kathy Mattia, and Tanya Tucker. <laughs> oh, and wow. the first line is, a cross between a movie star and a hero in the book, Romeo comes strutting in and everybody looks. That's a great country lyric. <laughs> it gets better because she starts to use Shakespeare. Oh, okay. Hey, Romeo, where art thou? Not wherefore art thou, but in this case, where art thou? Uh, get out here on the floor. I want to see you dancing till you forget wherefore. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, that's I do like Dolly Parton. Real quick, 10 points for using Metonymous and Dolly Parton in the same breath. That's an achievement right there. <laughs> <laughs> that is well probably done, the most accurate and quick summation of who I am as a person. <laughs> <laughs> like it's impressive that Dolly said, "Till you forget wherefore." Like that's correct. Yeah, no, that's know? really clever. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah. yeah, that's smart. Um, and it rhymes with dance floor. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 it rhyme. is interesting though that he's become metonymous, as you say, with lover. But in fact, I said with a perfect lover. In fact, when we say he's quite the Romeo, we mean he plays the, the field. We don't mean he's a perfect, devoted lover. No. Oh, that's a good point. Which is kind he's of interesting, um, given that he, in fact, in Shakespeare, he is kind of oh, like that. Yeah, he is quite he plays the Romeo. Around, yeah. You know, he is, yeah, he's playing, he's, he's inconstant. He's a lover boy, yeah. And I mean, that's always the uh, the what if of that play, too. What had they, they lasted survived, more yeah. than three days, when had the they, next pretty girl walked, <laughs> walked by, <laughs> would he have been constant to yeah. her? If Friar Lawrence hadn't rushed ahead with the marriage, would he have been off, you know, off on her. another girl yeah. two days later? Mm-hmm. Juliet was quite right to be worried about him, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, he just never got the chance. So. Yeah, you know, Juliet. Juliet does want him to, you know, linger a little bit longer in bed. There's sort of that modern trope of yeah. of the guy who post coitus <laughs> kind of flees the scene. Yeah. Zephyrelli's working a little angle there, perhaps. <laughs> I mean, yes, he would literally die if he stayed. But <laughs> though it's interesting, would, would that it they kill you to stay? That. Yes, yes, it would it's kill. It's interesting me to that stay. they switch because <laughs> he's so saying, funny. "Oh, I've got to go. I've you know got you know it's it's the lark, it's the morning," and she's saying, "No, stay. It was only the nightingale." But then as soon as he says, "Oh," All right, I'll stay. She immediately then switches. And says, says, no, no, no it was right. the lark. You got to get out of here. Right? She is not permitted the the luxury of being roman- foolishly romantic. Right? right. Somewhat, one of them's got to be practical, and yeah. it always seems to fall to her. Right. In the end, it always does. End. You know, nobody says she's such a Juliet. No, and yet she's not inactive as a lover. And I did like the way that yeah. was played in mm-hmm. the movie. She's not uh, made to be a passive and fearful, you know, recipient of his wooing. She has moments of that, but she's also really quite actively interested in him and mm-hmm. steps forward and is bold. She's played as a good match or better than him, mm-hmm. I think, in the movie, which is, is appropriate to the play. And it's also just nice to, to see. Yeah, yeah. So kind of as we wind down, Mm -hmm. there are a few things I want to note about this as a movie specifically. Mm -hmm. This was nominated for a slew of Oscars, including Best Director and Best Picture. Uh, Fun fact, it was the last Shakespeare adaptation to be nominated for Best Picture. Hmm. Wow. But it also won two Oscars for Best Costume Design and Best Cinematography. Oh, Mm. yeah. Mm. Makes sense. It is very beautiful. But 
as I was watching this movie, I found that there were points when I was really engaged and then points at which I was a little flagging in my attention. Mm -hmm. And I think actually as a movie, this is a really brilliant job of identifying a, a change that is starting to occur in 1968, but really doesn't end up finishing until 1977, treating the whole movie as a work. You know, because there are so many beautiful shots, primarily in the main the main square. You know, there's mm -hmm. like a they focus on the church or there's like a lot of very specific and detailed use of focus, mm -hmm. like a very flat mm -hmm. focus with architectural details in the background that is in a lot of scenes in public, but doesn't really extend to a lot of the scenes in private areas. And you, you know, you return to then action, which is shot very beautifully. And then there is, you know, there are monologues, there are scenes just of talking that are not shot as beautifully and not really edited the same way mm. and as a contemporary viewer to me that feels jarring but at the same time in 1968 that was actually kind of progressive and i say this arc didn't really close until 1977 you have a few things along the way if you've seen all the president's men that movie has really really intense and detailed use of cinematography but in a way that's not meant to be explicitly artistic it's the way that it uses like focus and and plays with kind of like camera planes to like drive your attention which i think we see start you know in romeo and juliet mm -hmm. uh but what ends in 1977 is a little movie called star wars you might have heard of it mm -hmm. <laughs> and star wars is revolutionary for a number of reasons one of them being honestly one of the most underappreciated reasons is the editing style that star wars brought forth mm. george lucas was fed up with the editor that he had and fired him and edited the whole movie by himself and ended up being so stressed out that he had to like check himself into a hospital but <laughs> regardless traditionally movies were edited around the story and so you know you would sit there with the script you would find the best shot for the script and then you would you know cut that in Mm -hmm. And what George Lucas did instead is he used the script as a guideline, but as he was editing, he used like kind of the feel and the pace of the clips that had been assembled and, you know, shot previously mm -hmm. to create a new piece that was kind of reflective of the full process rather than like treating the script as like a god. And, you know, I, I, I think we see elements of that in this movie hmm. because... You know, we're talking about things that he cut out versus things that he didn't. Mm -hmm. And this is something we talk about generally in our adaptations of mm -hmm. Shakespeare. But so I think what we're seeing here and some of the like peculiarities that we've noticed are indicative of this switch where Shakespeare, the text, is no longer the primary creative impulse, at least, you know, in the editing room. Mm -hmm. Like there are moments where we're, we're disengaging from that to create a better movie. Yeah, it's not driven by that script. Yeah. But there are moments when we're still not doing that. And so that's why, to me, you know, as somebody who has grown up firmly in the post Star Wars world, mm -hmm. like it feels a little off at points. Yeah, I think that's I think you're right. And I hadn't thought of it in those ways, but I think you're right. That's part of the process. Maybe this is somewhere in line. One thing I noticed is and, and this is something that you can do better on film uh, than on the page. I, I haven't seen I haven't seen too many productions of Romeo and Juliet on the stage, but I imagine it would be harder to do. But Zeffirelli and his cinematographer do a gorgeous job of constantly having Romeo and Juliet when they're together embrace and then be separated. And what's separating them sometimes it's a physical object like the wall. Oftentimes, maybe it's a person like Friar Lawrence or mm. an adult. So yeah, that's yeah. using the language of the cinema to show reality 
it's constantly coming between the two. And maybe that's in line with Jonathan's theory about this is kind of the turning point of the way that it's consistent, I think, with Shakespeare's intention, but it's not doing it through words. It's mm. doing it through cinema. Physical. Yeah, the physical. The uh, scene in the... Yeah, physical. The wedding scene. It's probably one of the ones you're thinking of there where they... Where fire, where they're trying to reach each other past yeah. Fire Lawrence yeah. the whole time, and it's really very funny. Yeah, actually, yeah, yeah, that was. Uh... Or the hands, the hand scene when 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 they're parting at the balcony and the mm-hmm. sun's out. Yeah, and, and their hands are just. Th- yeah. That one's a bit. That one's a bit on the nose. But, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Fun little curio. I've been to most of the shooting locations without even <laughs> having tried to curate like a <laughs> Romeo, Romeo and Juliet, Juliet experience. <laughs> they did a lot of shooting in Tuscany at a city called Pienza, which was a one of the first like purpose-built cities by Pope Pius. That's why it's called Pienza. It's named for himself. <laughs> and uh, the Palace of the Capulets is Palazzo Piccolomini there. Uh, the church they used was in Lucca, which I have been to as well. Um, I will say that that church has a like a late 12th century cosmetesque floor, which is historically inaccurate for a church in Verona. I can't believe they made such a pedestrian <laughs> mistake. Do you know where the mausoleum was shot? I, I thought the the crypt scenes were gorgeous. I um, believe that was shot in Florence. Let me double check. Is it, speaking of historical accuracies, I, I don't know if I've seen a crypt depicted quite that way where you actually see bodies. Yeah, I was wondering about various, that too. Because to breathe that air would be that would be treacherous to to breathe in that. All that I can f- find is that it was shot at an unspecified location in Tuscany. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So I don't know about. I mean, Jonathan, you might know more about uh, Renaissance tombs. <laughs> I don't know. Well, honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. Uh, although I will say that, w- like, within early Christianity and like fourth century Rome, mm-hmm. that's not inaccurate. Okay, well then it's not impossible. It would have nicely paid off the line had they kept it of her imagining what it would be like to wake up with all these dead bodies around, but they cut that. Right, that but she really did well, wake maybe up. To, with maybe the to Jonathan's point, that's where one of those one of those differences using the language of cinema as opposed to as opposed Juliet's. to yeah. She didn't need to give us. She that didn't speech. need to give us that line because the horror of it was visually. Though, but she didn't seem true. very horrified. No, and in, in, in she imagines it. Before she decides to take the poison mm-hmm. or the potion, mm-hmm. yeah. So she's had, you know, character-wise, characterologically speaking, it's 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 a significant difference. Yeah, because it doesn't play up her bravery, the the bravery and the her bravery. commitment mm-hmm. that she's mm-hmm. willing to do it in spite of how. Yeah. Um, she yeah. we in in the movie, she doesn't even hesitate, which is another type of bravery. But she doesn't even mm-hmm. take the time to think about what it might mean. Mm-hmm. She just goes for it. Yeah. Without. She downs it. At the same time, like a family tomb, you would have reused this over and over and over again. So maybe they would have placed like the bodies there to slowly to decompose, decompose, and decompose then move the bo- bones later. Yeah, that into could be. an ossuary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A fair amount of dead Capulets in there, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I mean, recently dead Capulets. Given how <laughs> frequently they killed each other, I mean, yeah. one would expect it to be just overflowing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it sounds like we're. We've come to the end of the points we particularly wanted to make, so maybe we should wrap up. Yeah, there's not a lot more I have to add. Did I, I take it we all enjoyed the movie. It certainly sounds like we did. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not my reading of Romeo and Juliet, but I found it an enjoyable movie. Right. Well said. It's not my reading of Romeo and Juliet either, but I found myself still thinking about the the film the next day, and 
mm-hmm. humming that infectious score yes. from <laughs> Nino Rota. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And what I like about this and why, well, I mean, one of the things that I thought Branagh was referencing about this movie in mm-hmm. 1993 was that the score itself is also presented diegetically within one of the party scenes. Yes. Yes. Where yes, someone is singing much. it. And of course, Much Ado About Nothing in 93 opens with Hey Nani Nani being sung. Mm-hmm. And then uses it later on. Yeah. yeah. In, in the middle. Yeah. Diegetically. So I think that that's probably a, a conscience re- conscious reference on Rana's part. Yeah. Rana's part too. The lyrics though aren't Shakespearean. Those, those lyrics were composed by a lyricist for. Oh, I wondered Nina about Rota, that. Right. I- uh, is it? It's from? not in. I did a little. It's not in the play. I did a little researching, and as far as I know, there was some lad who, who wrote it. Right. Um, for Nino Rota, you know the. Do we have any uh, Renaissance dance <laughs> scholars <laughs> in the Among area us, here? Because yeah. I, I, I did enjoy the the dance scenes. Actually, I, I like that Zeffirelli lingered on it. Um, mm-hmm. It, it kind of brought the masquerade to life a little bit more than it comes across when you're just reading Shakespeare on the page. Yeah. It made me think of all the Austin movies with the dance scenes. There's always the balls, and they always spend quite a lot oh, of yeah. time showing Quadrilles. you the fancy uh, yeah. the fancy dance moves. <laughs> it's not quite the right word for it, but uh, <laughs> those kind of... No, I think that's, I think that's the perfect turn of phrase for it. <laughs> that is interesting, because in Much Ado, of course, the mo- the song that they use in the same way is from the play. Yes. Mm-hmm. The music yeah. isn't, but yeah. Also, since we're talking about Much Ado, uh, shout out to my friend Katie, who <laughs> texted me. This is not the Katie co-host of Talking Tolkien in mm-hmm. our library alone. This is a different Katie. Texted me a couple weeks ago, said, listening to your Much Ado About Nothing podcast and just had a heart attack when you said, my reaction is Emma Thompson, but then you finished just the best. So my heart is okay again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No one could possibly stay friends with anyone who didn't love Emma Thompson, right? I mean, that's just a—it's just one of those deal breakers right there. Anyway, I could talk forever, so I'm going to stop myself now. <laughs> right. Well, we won't. Uh, we don't know what we're going to do next, uh, as people are probably gathering by now. This is all a little, you know, fly by the seat of our pants. What we're doing. <laughs> yeah, we tried keeping and it regular hot. for a while. My my job right now is taking a lot out of me, and hopefully. It'll lighten up soon. And I love my job, but I have not a lot of time to sit and talk sometimes. Yeah. Need more time in the Zeffirelli zone. <laughs> but yeah, we'll, we'll decide what we're going to do next uh, in a little while. And maybe I'll let people know on Twitter if you want to watch and keep up with what we're doing. But in the meantime, I guess we can call it a wrap on this Romeo and Juliet. Parting All right. is such sweet sorrow. <laughs> Parting? Uh, Mark, that was good. That was good. <laughs> That was good. That was needed. You needed that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at Alliterative. I'm at Avensara, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Zeffirelli Zone, where we watch and discuss different versions of productions put out by Franco Zeffirelli. <laughs> Today, we're focusing on some of his Shakespearean work. <laughs> Couldn't resist. It's a spinoff. <laughs>
<laughs> I love it. Well, since I'm known for being the Zeffirelli fan around here. <laughs>